Thank you, Kevin, for shepherding our hearts, both in song and in prayer. And AV team, thank you for helping me each Sunday. And uh, for our guests who are here uh, visiting over the Thanksgiving season, we're thankful that you're able to join us. And for our church family who are traveling at this time and perhaps watching us by streaming, we're keeping you in prayer as you minister to your families and as you travel. It's good to see everyone this morning. Well, we're returning this morning to the topic of prayer, to the God-breathed words of Matthew 6 and Jesus' instruction on the righteous worship and prayer of his kingdom. And we're going to be diving in this morning to perhaps one of the uh, most misunderstood, most misused prayers in the history of the world, the Lord's Prayer. And this morning, much of our time is actually going to be listening carefully to Christ's introduction to this prayer and really setting the setting for this prayer, the context, because frequently we tend to take it out of context. And it's reflected many times in the prayers that we hear and we see in church. For many people, worship is about what I believe in. Worship is about what I do at church, even that statement. This is what I believe in. Well, that's about me, what I think, my understanding. It's the world of one, right? And prayer is about communicating with what or who I worship. And both prayer and worship are frequently about how I get something I need from my higher power, be that my boss, my job, my spouse, or, or me. But as we listen to God's word, very clearly for Jesus, worship and prayer are about something infinitely more vital, infinitely more precious, infinitely more wonderful than a church service or a spiritual moment. For Jesus, worship and prayer are about a relationship. They're about a relationship, the single most important relationship with the single most important person in the universe, the holy and eternal creator and God of all creation, what we sang in the first praise song this morning. And the question that Jesus asks of all men and women is not, do you have a faith? Well, I have a faith. I'm a spiritual person. He doesn't ask that. He doesn't ask, do you have a religion? He does not ask, do you have a church? Or do you belong to a church? But rather, Christ asks of us, do you have a right relationship with my Father. And this is what the gospel is about. There are no shortage of Hebrew and Greek scholars who are able to articulate clearly and write elaborately about the New Testament and the Old Testament. And they are cold, and they are heartless, and they are difficult, And they have no relationship with God whatsoever. One of the most renowned scholars, New Testament, who put together one of the foundational texts on how to interpret Greek and the Greek words, was someone who was a German who was supportive of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. Adolf Hitler prayed. And his prayers are recorded for us. And he would refer to, probably with delight, to God as Almighty God. Because he was enamored with the power of a God who could crush people. He did not know God as Father. We see, brothers and sisters, that distortion so often 
and the sweetness and beauty of our Lord and Savior in his ministry to us and his good news is he brings to us a relationship that we could never have, a relationship with the eternal and holy creator of the universe as Father. And he asks of us, do you know my Father the way I do? Do you have a right relationship with him? And this is our big truth for this morning. And AV team, perhaps you can help me with that for the next slide. Our big truth is that the Lord's Prayer is the expression of a right relationship with God, this Heavenly Father. The Lord's Prayer is the expression. It's a demonstration. It's showing us what a right relationship with God as Heavenly Father looks like. It's showing us what a life of a child of God in a nutshell from beginning to end looks like. It begins with our Heavenly Father and it ends with God's forgiveness and the forgiveness that he calls us to give. And the big question this morning is, do you have a right relationship with God as your heavenly father? And it's a helpful question as we come into the Thanksgiving season and we meet up with our families. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter six and we're gonna read verses five through 15. This is Jesus teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the middle of the section of chapter six as he talks about our prayer and our worship. And he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Verse five, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the first century, when Jesus was speaking these words, Jews were expected to recite the Shema, which is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. They were expected to recite that two times a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And they were also expected to pray at the beginning and end of each meal with a different prayer. And different prayers were prescribed depending on the foods that you ate. And at the close of each Shabbat or Sabbath, three prayers were prescribed. And in addition to that, three times a day, Jews were expected to pray the tefillah, which was composed typically of 18 benedictions. And some have described this practice of prayer as, quote, a labor or a work of awakening the hidden love within the heart until a state of intimate union with the divine is achieved. So the idea is that you would pray these and you can go today and go to the Wailing Wall or under the Wailing Wall and you can see religious and Orthodox Jews praying and reciting some of these prayers. And the idea is you pray through them and as you pray through them, kind of kickstart in your heart, right? It's a warm up. And as you go through, this is what, you know, gets the uh, stalled motor going. 
It's a way to warm the heart. Now this may seem foreign to us, and I want to caution you against looking down on or saying that's weird or strange, because truth be told, we see the same approaches to worship and prayer in most religions. And this includes Islam and Roman Catholicism and Buddhism, all of which use prayer beads to keep track of all the different prayers you were supposed to pray while you were trying to get into the zone. It's like basketball, right? You don't take your shots on a regular basis. You're never going to get into the zone. This is the general idea. And most of these religions, as we consider them, they each have their charismatic sects, which use mystical movement and meditation and speaking in tongues as a way to connect with their higher power. And as evangelicals, we know we tend to use praise music, right, to get ourselves going. And the history of contemporary and revival movements are people gathering together and singing the same songs and going on and on and on and on and working yourself into a trance to get into the mood. And crusades, typically there's warm-up music that's used to put people in the mood to come down the aisle and get right with the Lord. So whether it be the Vatican or Mecca or a yoga studio or a church, we see, brothers and sisters, there's no end to man-made rituals and prayers that are all about trying to connect with something that's greater than ourselves. And this includes tailgating and the exchanging of friendship bracelets at Taylor Swift concerts. Why do we do these things? Well, as we come to God's word, beginning in Genesis 1, God shows us that we are originally his creation. And we were created in his likeness and in his image. And we were created for his worship, for his relationship, and for his fellowship. And so we crave fellowship. We crave relationships. We crave worship. But instead of worshiping our creator on his terms and according to his word, we have chosen to worship what we want on our terms and in our way. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. There is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who seeks the Lord. And scripture calls this selfish ambition. Scripture calls this idolatry. Scripture calls this sinfulness, and the result is folly and madness. Proverbs 28 19b says, He who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. In Jeremiah 2 5, the prophet Jeremiah points out that those who go after what is empty and worthless will become empty and worthless themselves. In church family, this is our TikTok world. This is our TikTok worship. And this is the endless parade of counterfeit religion and rituals and prayers that there is no shortage of and just continue and continue and continue. People coming up with new ideas and new ways to connect with what they crave and desire and they so desperately need. And in the end, they're left hungry and broken. And the good news of God's word, brothers and sisters, is this is the world and this is the worship that God sent his son into in order to deliver us out of, to bring us out of this world, but also to bring us out of this worship. And as we consider our Lord and Savior, by all accounts, Jesus was a man of prayer. He was one who prayed intentionally, he prayed privately, he prayed regularly, especially during the busiest and hardest times in his earthly ministry. For Jesus, prayer was indeed like breathing. The steeper the hill, the greater the prayer. But what was also plain 
for all to see, especially his disciples, is that Jesus and his prayer were both remarkably different, unique, exceptional. As you read through the prayers of Jesus and you read through the prayers of his apostles, Jesus' prayer is simple and direct. Jesus' prayer is intimate and refreshing. The effect are like springs of cool water on a hot day. There is no working himself into a spiritual frenzy. There is no speaking in tongues. There is no endless chanting and reciting sutras and shamas and Hail Marys and quote-unquote our fathers in order to warm up the heart or connect with God. I think one of the greatest indictments against the charismatic movement and the speaking in tongues is just look at our Lord and Savior's worship and the relationship that he had with his father. Why was Jesus' worship different? And the answer, like the gospel and like Christ's prayer, is incredibly simple. Jesus didn't need to connect with God. He already had a perfect connection with his heavenly Father. He already had a perfect and right relationship with God. He didn't need to fix it, adjust it, or shout out, or scream more, or speak in a special tongue to get it. And his prayers were the expression of that perfect relationship with his Father. If you've ever had the chance to interact with people who have a good marriage or a good relationship, you know how often it's just a glance or there's the anticipation or someone, a spouse will even know what their spouse is about to say before they say it. They understand, they've been together, they're united, they have a unity that's there. And the beauty of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is this is the relationship that Christ came to give to you and I. Jesus, his prayer, is a simple expression of the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. One God, three distinct people or persons in perfect, sinless, holy communion. This, brothers and sisters, is what sets apart Christianity and the gospel from every other religion. And Jesus' prayer was what prayer was always meant to be. The holy, sinless fellowship and communion between a child of God and his or her heavenly father by the power of his Holy Spirit. So church family, if children of God are to learn how to pray rightly, who must we learn from? The good news of God's word is we don't have to search far. Our treasure, our portion, is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everything we need, we have in him. And this brings us to our first point this morning. God's children must learn from Christ how to pray. God's children must learn from Christ how to pray. Who taught you how to pray? Who taught you how to speak and fellowship and commune with God? For most people, we learn to pray at church. And we typically learn by imitating others. And that might not be a bad thing if that person is a godly person. And they have a good relationship with our Lord and Savior. But brothers and sisters, it is no substitute for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even Paul, when he said, imitate me, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he was an apostle who was uniquely set apart to represent Christ in a way that the rest of us typically are not. Many of you who come from immigrant backgrounds, you know what it's like to grow up in an immigrant household where the English that is spoken in the house is broken. And it works fine. 
for that house and that family. But you understand too, when you go out or you go elsewhere and you speak that same language, people do not understand. Why? Because we've learned by imitating and what we've imitated and learned is a broken English or a broken language. And so much, brothers and sisters, very frequently, our relationship with God and our imitation comes from showing up at church and thinking this is how they do things. And what we're left with is a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with one another. And we just codify it and brand it and say, hey, this is what it means to be a Christian. Well, no. This is not what God desires for you if that's what he desired he would never have sent his son into our world and into your life to teach you how to walk in his love in john 14 6 jesus says to his disciple thomas i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me and in 1 timothy 2 5 the apostle paul explains to timothy he says for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. And it ain't the Pope, it ain't the priest, and it ain't a pastor. It is the man, Christ Jesus. And this is also really as you walk through the chapters of Matthew that we've been walking through, and we'll revisit it, I guess, during Advent. This is also Matthew's God-breathed testimony. There is only one way to a right relationship with God. And it is not through imitating people who say they're believers or who have a broken relationship with God. It is by God's grace, through faith, in the life and the lordship of God's holy and eternal Son, Jesus Christ. Now I know that sounds repetitive, but brothers and sisters, how often do we forget that? or take that for granted. And then things become any way we want or any way we think. And we miss out on the good news of who Jesus is. The good news of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is God sent his eternal and beloved son, Jesus Christ, into our world to bring sinners like us into a right relationship with him as our Heavenly Father. And this included not only dying for our sins. This included not only bringing us out of the kingdom of darkness and its worship and into his kingdom and worship of light, this also included Christ teaching us how to rightly live and pray as God's beloved children. Now, last week I used my boys as an illustration and I'm going to carry it one step further. The Lord has graciously given Julie and I our children. They are gifts from the Lord. And they will always be, because of that, our boys. And nothing can change that. But that does not mean they can live any way they want in our home. To the contrary, because they are God's gift to us and because they are our boys, there is a chin standard and a chin life that is required of them. A standard and a life that is not required of children who do not belong to us. And as the servant leader of our home, God has given me the very necessary responsibility of leading and teaching my boys how to rightly live as our boys, how to rightly walk and talk in our love, how to relate to their mother and myself as their parents. And there are moments and times as they grow and other influences come in where they see how other kids interact with their parents. And they come home and they try that out. And they receive the rude awakening. That's fine on the street. That's fine at school. That isn't fine 
if Christ is king and this is our home. Now let me ask you, parents who are out there, for our children to rightly live in our love and for them to know how to walk and talk in our family as our children. Does that happen automatically? Kids are here, delivery's over, pain is done, epidural is out, good to go. Happy times for the rest of our life. Just because you're born into a family doesn't mean you have a clue about how to behave and live in that family. And the beauty of our God, brothers and sisters, is he does not leave us to ourselves. This is not a foster home where you're fending for yourself and trying to figure out how do I relate. He has given us everything we need in Christ. And in Matthew chapter five through seven, Jesus is speaking as the Messiah, the son of God and the servant king of God's household. And he is speaking first and foremost to his disciples who are individuals. He is personally leading through repentance and faith in him out of the kingdom and family of this world and into the kingdom and household of God. And he is doing it personally. And in Matthew 5, Jesus makes it clear the standard of his father's kingdom and the standard of his father's household is his father's righteousness, not the righteousness of the world. And it's for this reason it is no longer acceptable for Jesus' disciples to live and give and worship and pray like the world does. It is, I'm going to say it again, it is no longer acceptable for his disciples to live and give and worship and pray the way the world does. That is lost, brothers and sisters, in the church at large. We are taking our cues from what we've grown up with, our experience, what we see, and we want that. Jesus has just come, and what we walked through last week, he says, it's go in the opposite direction. Because the world lives and worships and prays for religious success, for personal validation, for power, for selfish ambition and folly. And this is what Jesus has come to set us free from. And he has indeed set us free from it, brothers and sisters. And Jesus is pointing out, if he is indeed their king and they are God's children, then according to Jesus in Matthew 6, 5 through 15, they must learn how to pray like God's son. They must learn how to speak like God's son. They must learn how to worship and live with their heavenly father and live with one another from the one who does it perfectly. This is why Jesus came. This is why he lived a perfect life. This is why it didn't just come down as a zap or a book. He came into a humble and lowly family, working class carpenter's family, born in a manger, in a poor neighborhood, under difficult circumstances, a refugee and a fugitive into Egypt and back. The circumstances for his family were not easy. He came in under the law. He did all of these things so that he might show us and lead us in how we can have a right relationship with God, even under the worst of circumstances. And by his spirit, he gives us the power, brothers and sisters, to do so with joy and delight and to enjoy the fellowship and goodness in the midst of a fallen world while we wait for his kingdom to come and for him to return. And that's why, as you look at the disciples in prison, in difficult circumstances, the apostle Paul in chains, and yet there is a joy and a fellowship and a delight and a celebration and a warmth that's there. Where does it come from? They're one with God as their heavenly father. They have a personal relationship with Christ. Their hearts are filled with the spirit and the word of God and the promises of God. 
And they are also, because of that, united with one another in, in a way in which the world cannot be connected. That's why, brothers and sisters, when we go home for Thanksgiving, there's times where we interact with members of our biological family, and they are on a different page. And of course, we love them. Of course, we care for them. Of course, we reach out to them. At the same time, we realize there is something missing. What's missing, brothers and sisters, is the life and love and ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are things, brothers and sisters, that we need to learn. And that's why Jesus shows us we need to learn from him how to pray intentionally, how to pray intuitively, how to pray regularly, how to pray privately. Praying to God naturally and faithfully as our Heavenly Father. And this is why Jesus commands and instructs his disciples in verse 9, pray then like this. This brings us to our second point for this morning, probably our final one. The prayer of God's children begins with the gospel. The prayer of God's children begins with the gospel. What follows Christ's commands for his disciples to pray then like this in verse 9 is, as I said before, perhaps the most misunderstood and misused prayer in the history of the world. Also what's known as, or more famously, the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father. And what is frequently ignored are Jesus' words and his gospel. We take it out of context. You've sinned, go and say 20 our fathers, right? We stand up in church, are we believers? Well, we need to be able to stand up and recite the Lord's Prayer to show, hey man, we've got the secret handshake, we're on the inside. And often, brothers and sisters, what we've left behind is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his gospel. And yet that is very much the context for this prayer and for this sermon. What God has done to save sinners by the power of his Holy Spirit in and through his Son, Jesus Christ, according to his word. This is what has brought the disciples to repentance and faith in Christ. This is what has brought the disciples to a right relationship with God. This is what has brought the disciples to a place of forgiveness and wholeness and righteousness that they don't possess. And this is what has brought the disciples to a different kind of prayer. It's what's brought them to Christ's command when he says, pray then like this. And when Jesus says pray, he is speaking as the Messiah and the Son of God. He is personally giving his disciples an authoritative, non-optional divine command. And he's giving a command from the language that is there. It's given in the present tense. It's for ongoing, habitual prayer to God. Christ commands his disciples to habitually pray to God as their father. And so that begs the question, brothers and sisters, do you pray? Would J.C. Rao and Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis and many men of God have asked, do you pray? Because to pray is synonymous with being saved. And Jesus here commands his disciples, ongoing habitual prayer. How does Jesus save sinners from their sinfulness, brothers and sisters? He doesn't do it by zapping you. This is the area of so much discouragement by people who are in bondage to sin. They come to church, they hear a sermon, they expect, and I prayed a prayer, and nothing has changed. And yet when we come and see that the gospel is so much more, the gospel is about a relationship with Christ, 
who not only gives his life for us, brothers and sisters, but he takes us by the hand and he teaches us and he instructs us step by step as he walks with us by the power of his spirit and his word out of the darkness and into the light. And if we are not willing by faith to walk with him step by step and follow his lead and his training and his instructions, yes, we will continue to sit in darkness. He saves us not just by giving us a new life, but by personally ruling this new life as our king and our leader. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. My job is no longer my king. My family is no longer my king. Success is no longer my king. This world is no longer my king. Christ is my king. I answer to him. They can scream and shout all they want. They can pressure all they want. They can say I'm a loser all they want. The only word and voice that matters is the word and voice of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he says, I love you. I've died for you. You belong to me. I am free. Let me teach you how to live as someone who's free. And in verse 9, the literal translation of Jesus' words, it begins in Greek by saying, in this way. His emphasis is the way. In this way, therefore, which connects it to everything he's commanded before. In this way, therefore, pray. And at the end, in the Greek, he emphatically adds, you. It's implied in our Bibles, but in Greek, it's you, plural. He's speaking to the disciples, and it's almost as if he's pointing his finger specifically at them. You are to pray habitually in this way. And this is in direct contrast to Jesus' gospel command in verse 5 and 7 of not being and not praying like the idolatrous and selfish and foolish children of this world who do not know God as their heavenly father and lead empty lives. And very clearly when Jesus says in this way, he never intended that the prayer that follows this command, the Lord's Prayer, to be used as a religious recipe or a ritual or frequently in the ways we use it. Instead, both his command and prayer are given to rule, to correct, and to direct our hearts. His command and prayer are given to rule and correct and direct the desires and attitudes of his disciples' hearts and worship, because this is what he did in the previous section. He's going straight for our hearts, the direction of our hearts, what we want, what we desire. And so we see this prayer that he gives is meant to be instructive, not a formula or a recipe for religious success. It is meant to be instructive of our hearts, of the new hearts he's given, the hearts of children of God. Brothers and sisters, with this prayer, he's shepherding our hearts and he's showing us in a nutshell, this is what a child of God is. This is what a child of God has. This is what a child of God does. showing us how to live and love and commune with our Heavenly Father as part of his heavenly family. And this is summed up by the very first words of Jesus' prayer, our Father in heaven. And this is nothing less than a gospel confession. This is where the prayer starts. Christ's command, Christ's confession. And by confession, we mean an agreement with God's word about who he is and what he has done in the lives of his beloved children, by the power of his Holy Spirit, in and through the life and love of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. Our Father in heaven is a declaration of who the God of the Bible is, who the eternal and sovereign creator of the universe is. He is not a genie. He is not a buddy. He is not a Marvel superhero. He is the one who has, by the power of his spirit, brought the disciples together into a personal and intimate and saving relationship with himself as their heavenly father in Christ. 
that we've grown up saying this prayer so often, brothers and sisters, that we take it for granted that God is our Heavenly Father. And yet, not infrequently, we miss out in the lives that we live, which bear very little resemblance to knowing what a Heavenly Father is and what a relationship with Him is like. Prior to the coming of God's Son, I could only find four times in Scripture where individuals refer to God as Father. There's one time by King David, one time in Psalm 89, and two times by Isaiah, and both of those times in Isaiah are prophecies about the salvation that is to come. Prior to Christ's coming, God's people were unable to approach God directly or personally. And for most people, just like today, God was their holy judge and enemy. And because of God's holiness and their sinfulness, God's people required prophets, priests, and sacrifices in order to draw near to God. And even then, it was a distant relationship. For most people, an intimate and personal relationship with God as Father was unthinkable and blasphemous. Now we struggle with this, brothers and sisters, because so often our only framework for fathers is what we grew up with. And in our fallen world, a father is a toss-up between the man who got our mothers pregnant or the men who imperfectly raised us. Christ has come to draw a line, brothers and sisters. We need to grow up and walk away. And we need to see and be thankful for everything our fathers have given us through the Lord. But we also need to make a distinction that as children of God, our Father is heavenly. And there's a big difference. In Scripture, from the beginning in Genesis... God created fathers to be a reflection and a representation of his holy and eternal love for his holy and eternal son. By God's design and command, a father was to be the servant leader and head of a household, the one who gives his life, the one who gives his life sacrificially, the one who gives holy and self-sacrificing life and love and blessing and protection to those he is forever bound to. His family, his wife, his children, an eternal, a lifetime relationship of sacrificial life and love. It's meant to be a reflection, brothers and sisters, of the fellowship and the unity and the love that exists in the Trinity. And fathers were not only to represent this, but they were to spread this and take this out and fill the world with this. Love and relationship. The holy life and love of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this, brothers and sisters, is the family. This is the Father and this is the fellowship that Adam turned his back on in the garden. And this is the father and family and fellowship the world in America continues to reject today. We don't want this family, we don't want this fellowship, and we don't want this father. We want the fathers of our own choosing. Whatever that may be and whatever that might look like. And brothers and sisters, that trend happened a long time before our era of choosing our own genders and choosing our own marriages. This happened a long time ago. And it happened in the church as well, in the way in which we've chosen to be fathers. Brothers and sisters, this is the Father. This is the family and the fellowship of God's Word that Jesus Christ gave His life to restore Men, you will never be a good husband or a good father until you know the God of the Bible is your heavenly father. 
and you will never know the God of the Bible as your heavenly father without a relationship and a walk of repentance and faith in Christ as your Lord, where he is taking charge of every aspect of your life, your spare time, your hobbies, your career, and what you do in private where no one else is looking. You will never be able to teach your sons how to love and to walk in fellowship with a woman or with others in a way that honors the Lord unless you yourself know how to pray and commune with God as your heavenly Father. And men, if you are never praying privately, you will never pray publicly except in a way that's a fraud. And if you are never praying privately by the power of the Spirit according to the Word and learning from Jesus how to pray, I doubt your sons will truly know what a true father is, what true fellowship is, and what true family is. Yes, you'll pay their way through college. Yes, you'll show them how to survive in the world. Yes, you will show them how to do okay and make it through. But they will not know the fellowship and the family and the fatherhood that comes from one place and one place alone from heaven. When Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, he is both commanding and teaching his disciples, those who have repented and placed their faith in him as king. He's commanding and teaching them to have a new relationship with God in him. And when Jesus says our, he is not only testifying to the personal and intimate unity that the disciples now have with God as their heavenly father because of Jesus. He's also testifying to the personal and intimate unity they have with one another. Our father, that they are gathering together as God's children in the household of God. And because they're joined in this fellowship of perfect unity in Christ with the Father, they're joined in perfect unity with one another. This is the foundation of the church, brothers and sisters, the family of God. Jesus is commanding and teaching them because of him, they now have a new father, a new family, and a new fellowship that is heavenly and not worldly. And it's for this reason, they do not need to speak in tongues, they do not need to chant, and they do not need to work themselves up with praise music to have that connection. They already have it in Christ. Jesus is teaching his disciples to approach God boldly, directly, intimately as Father, but on God's terms, in light of who God is, in light of what God has done in Christ, by the power of his spirit and according to his word. We were talking to our boys this morning and we'll bring things to a close. And my wife told our boys about the prayer class that I was given in seminary. And in that prayer class, we were prescribed. Part of the responsibility was to keep a prayer journal. And we were called, accounted for, I think JC's probably been through this, where we were required to pray an hour every day. My boy said, wow, I ran out of things to say after five minutes. What are you going to say for an hour? I sometimes wonder whether that prayer class and that commitment was given for that very purpose. Because seminary students have no problems reading books for hours all day. Seminary students have no problem studying for exams hours every day. Seminary students have no problem learning Hebrew and Greek for hours on end. But to pray to God for an hour seemed burdensome and overwhelming. And perhaps that was given to us to show us how upside down our lives were and how inadequate our prayer life was, and how limited our relationship as seminary students that we had with God as our Heavenly Father. Because the flip side of that, if you come into the Chin household, 
Some of you have babysat our kids, you know, no shortage of words. Sometimes I wish I could turn the volume off and there was a switch, right? It's nine o'clock, I need to go to bed. But why? Our children have grown up with parents who I think they know love them and will always love them. And they have grown and learned to speak and relate in that environment. And it's not one extreme or the other. I'm not going to say anything because my parents are going to explode. And it's also not the other end. I can say anything I want. There's a gospel structure, I hope, some days, where they've learned to say, I can share with my parents what I need to. I can come and get the help I need. I just have to do it in a way that comes in the terms that they have set and the framework and the guide and the direction within that I can say anything or do anything as long as I'm honoring who my parents are and doing it on the terms that they have set and in a way that they have made possible. And our Lord and Savior with this prayer is shepherding his disciples to say, this is your heavenly father because of me. You can come to him and you can ask for anything. You can say anything. He delights when you bring your petitions, your burdens and concerns. You don't need to be like the world where you're either running away in fear or you're babbling like a fool. But you do need to come in a way that recognizes who your father is. You do need to come on his terms, not yours. And you do need to come in the way that he makes possible. And this, of course, brothers and sisters, is the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the question, brothers and sisters, is do you have this relationship with God? If you don't, Christ came to give you that relationship and he desires for you to have that relationship. But it comes through repentance and faith in Christ, but it also comes by learning from Christ how to have that relationship. Can I have my final slide, please? Um, I think there's one other one. I'm sorry. Yes. If there's one thing I want to leave you with this morning, it's the question, have you spent time learning from Jesus how his father loves you we spend so much time brothers and sisters with so many things and the holiday season is going to get busy but Christ has come and part of the salvation he's brought is to teach us how to walk in our father's love and how to talk in our father's love we need to learn from him we should not assume because we've been in church for many years that we know or we've been to seminary. It requires discipline. It requires work. It requires effort. Yes, effort. It's not to earn our salvation. It is simply to grow what God has already given us, which is a perfect and intimate relationship with him as our Heavenly Father. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are our shepherd and our leader. Everything we need for holy communion and fellowship and an intimate relationship with every member of the Trinity you have made possible. But we need to learn. Would you teach us as a church? Would you teach us as individuals? Would you teach us as men and as fathers and husbands? Would you teach us, Lord Jesus, to put off the bad habits that we've learned from the world and many times from the evangelical church? And would you teach us, Lord Jesus, how to pray in the way you pray? In your name we pray, amen.